Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Endurance Innovation. Today, we've been thinking about a few things, and it really comes down to uh, something we've touched on previously, but why humans are slow, and in particular, why I'm slow. So this was a, <laughs> this was a question I, I really wanted to dive down into and see what, what can we actually do using myself as a case study uh, to, to make people faster. And for those of you who've been uh, with us from the beginning, our very first pilot episode uh, was that very same title, Why, Why Humans Aren't Fast, I think is what we said. And we and uh, we talked about some of those reasons. And uh, we continue to think about those things to this very day. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the neat things about some of the technology that we have access to, um, in particular, the virtual wind tunnel that I've been working on, is we can actually break it down by the amount of drag that's contributed by component to component or portion of the bike to portion of the bike. So it leads to a really interesting view and explanation of what what parts are actually making you slow. And it also helps to answer one of the questions that we have about the total breakdown of drag for, in this case, me in particular, versus the bike. Yeah, and more than that, it um, having this breakdown in hand allows us to think about what can we do about it, right? Because we, if you remember that that why humans are slow episode, um, we talked about some of the innovations uh, in recent years and not so recent years in cycling to make us a little bit faster. Um, but the more you you are able to break down, in our case, the the cyclist into the individual components, the more you can figure out where where we can focus our energies. You know, if some some areas are already quite optimized, uh, you know, like the bicycle, for example, um, whereas other areas we believe have, you know, there are opportunities, let's say. Absolutely. And I think there are plenty of opportunities, but really understanding where this all comes from is the root of the problem. And uh yeah, we're going to shed a little bit of light on that today. Okay, so Andrew, um, set this up for us. You uh, you have this uh, virtual wind tunnel, which I think, you know, by now, um, uh, probably all of our listeners are familiar with, but just in case we've got some new folks tuning in, uh, let people know roughly what it is and, and how it works without, I know, going into a computational fluid dynamics lecture, <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and then and then we can talk about the experiment that you set up and, uh, and then the results that we, we got from it. All right. Uh, I won't touch on the Navier-Stokes equations in this conversation. So please, everyone can <laughs> breathe a, a sigh of relief there. <laughs> the virtual wind tunnel is uh, basically a way to analyze and predict the drag of a cyclist uh, without having to visit an actual wind tunnel. What we do is capture a 3D scan, and this can be done through one of our partners. We don't have to be there. Um, but this 3D scan is captured, and we take the data, we compile it, and turn it into a 3D model. This 3D model is then input into what's called computational fluid dynamics, or CFD. And that's used to calculate how much drag is generated. And it's the, the calculation is, um, it involves uh, a whole bunch of math. It takes a few hours for a computer to run through it. But it spits out this answer of what the fluid flow or what the airflow would look like and the overall drag contributions. And you can do a couple neat things where you can break down different surfaces and, for example, calculate the, the, the drag that each little small square or little small bit of the surface is contributing to the overall drag. And this is something you can't really do in a wind tunnel, at least not, not easily. So it gives us a little bit more insight into where the, the drag is being generated above and beyond what a normal wind tunnel would be able to provide, even if you're hiring them out at $1,000 an hour. Right, right. And uh, as I hinted at earlier, the ability to break down the individual components of the, the bicycle and the rider allows us to think about where we can we can make further optimization. So this is something that, uh, as far as we know, no one's doing right now. And uh, Andrew and I are just starting to play around with it. Yeah, so it's a um, very interesting discussion. And what it'll lead into is, uh, as, as Michael hinted as well, is how can we optimize things? How can we look at either removing or replacing components or changing even body position? And this is something that, um, that I'm very excited about, is just the ability of our technology to 
allow you to to make those changes where if you want to change arm position or elbow position or head position, we can do that all digitally. So it avoids any of the issues with having to spend tons of time, make tons of adjustments. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't want to turn this into too much of a commercial about the service itself, but uh, why don't we dig down into some details then? Sounds great. So I think the next uh, the next step would be to tell folks how you uh, first of all who's who's our who's our model for today and uh, and how did you break down this model to get a to get a peek at the individual components? What were those components? I mean, all right. So drum roll. The model is myself. So uh, we'll post some of the images on the show notes so that everyone can see me in my spandex glory. Uh, which is not that impressive. Just to, uh, I'm just <laughs> glad it's you and not me. I, uh, <laughs> as a total sidebar, you you did a scan for me recently on some things that we're working on, and uh, you know the the uh, the the Christmas turkey was not kind. I'll I'll hold on to those for potential future blackmail. <laughs> Deal. Okay. So the the components that I broke down were. Um, basically just how you would kind of subdivide the bike and how you'd look at different things, uh, as well as the body, just to break it up into what I thought was a logical contribution. So we've got the bars that includes the base bar as well as the arrow bars, uh, forearms. So that's from your hands all the way down to your elbow. Um, and I'm going through this in alphabetical order because that's how I have it listed. Um, <laughs> and because that's the way I think usually. But uh, after the forearms is forks, the frame and that's the main kind of triangle section of the frame that most people are used to looking at. So the, the non-moving parts, if you were to, to break it down to its most basic form. The front wheel, uh, the gear train, and that includes the pedals, uh, the crank arms, and uh, the chain ring, all of that, as well as the cassette and derailers. Uh, the head, left foot and leg, and those are two different components. Uh, and then right foot and right leg are also broken down piece by piece. Rear wheel, and then torso, which is just the main part from basically your hips up to your shoulders, and the upper arms. And I painstakingly went through and, and subdivided myself, uh, which was a very meta experience. Um, so <laughs> cutting myself into these different uh, con contributors and went through and did all the calculations to figure out, okay, how much drag is each component actually providing? And what I find really interesting is um, kind of remnants from when I used to do more weightlifting. I've still got a bit of a maybe not muscular <laughs> physique, but maybe a little bit more reminiscent of a bodybuilder um, as opposed to a triathlete like uh, our, our good friend Cody Beals, who is a fair bit leaner than I am. So, uh, and Anthropologists would call you robust. Yeah, okay, and... thank you. That's very generous, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, yeah, yeah it, could, it could go either yeah, way, I yeah. think. So uh, overall, my, my drag wasn't great, wasn't terrible. I ended up with a CDA of about 0.24, uh, give or take. And that was something that it aligns very closely with what I'd seen in race results. So uh, when I had done the Ironman Maryland, um, I ended up doing, I think it was around 190 watts was my average power. And I averaged around 36 and a half kilometers an hour. Solid. Um, and for the most part, it was pretty consistent. The wind picked up uh, near the end, so the the power to to speed ratio went down, um, and also just in absolute terms, the power started to go down at that point too. Separate problem, not aerodynamics related, but uh, yeah, um, that's that's my my story. Um, but I guess we are interested in the actual contributions, right? Yeah, and so we'll uh, we'll post this analysis as well as uh, some of Andrew's 3D scans and the flow separation images, which I think are just super cool. But we'll post the the relative percentages, um, so you guys don't need to have a pen and paper handy in case you're curious. But I do want to talk about some things that were some things were really surprising here, and other things confirmed some of our. Uh, pre-existing beliefs about you know how we expected uh, things to behave and specifically how the, which which bits of bike or body um, produced more or less drag. So Andrew, with that preamble, what uh, what surprised you the most um, from this observation? Well, I think uh, this is a very leading question since we discussed it before going on the air here. Um, but the, the head was the the real surprise because its contribution was 
so low compared to what we had expected. Um, so for reference, the forks are around three and a half, three point seven percent. Um, the bars are, and that's the the base bar and the extensions. They're around four and a half percent. They're sticking out into the wind, fresh air, um, which you would expect the drag to be a little bit higher there. There's nothing kind of shielding them. Um, but still sticking out into fresh air is the head. And that, for me, measured at around 1.5% of the total drag, which, which is crazy low. Yeah. So we had to do some discussion and figure out, like, okay, why is this actually so low? And um, there was a couple justifications that I used. So um, one being that when you look at a sphere, uh, the the drag coefficient is relatively high. Spheres are not that aerodynamic. So if you were to put your head kind of as the baseline for a sphere um, versus having a tapered teardrop shape, the drag coefficient for those generic shapes is typically a factor of five to eight lower. It can be that much of a difference. Um, and, and that means, for example, if you have 40 watts of drag or 30 watts of drag contributed by your head as a sphere, you may now be contributing one-sixth or one-eighth of that. So that could be 5 to 10 watts of total drag uh, just being contributed by your head. So that's it, it's just incredibly low um, with the head in the right position. And... That's the big, that's the big if that's the big, really big if yeah if you have your head sticking up like a periscope on a submarine uh, that's not doing you any favors so there's there's a couple things that you want to look out for um, first of all not overly increasing frontal area is fairly important um, this essentially lets your head hide the rest of your body and the drag from the head kind of blends in to the rest of it so it's um, when you break it down on a part by part basis. It, it may be misleading sometimes, but uh, the head is shielding some of the things behind it. Um, but it's also smoothly redirecting the airflow around other components. And this is why the shape of the helmet is absolutely critical. So the helmet I was wearing for a lot of these analyses is the one I race with. It's the uh, the Garneau, the LG P09. And it's a helmet that I really like. Um, it's maybe not the most comfortable, but it's lightweight, low drag, uh, relatively inexpensive, which is something I almost never say about any <laughs> triathlon equipment. And if you look at heads of, uh, of a high-level pro cyclist, you will see that helmet on a lot of beans, um, specifically what well, Cody wears it, I believe, or yep. he's gone back to it. Um, yep. And that's these people aren't, uh, you know, Cody's not sponsored by Garneau, but so there's a reason why he's wearing that helmet. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the teardrop shape that it offers allows for a lot of the flow separation, the pressure drag that would normally be contributed to... Uh, maybe not disappear, but at least be minimized. Um, so now that I've mentioned pressure drag, it's probably a good time to actually break down <laughs> what the components of drag are. Uh, so the the two main forms that we come through or that, that we see is uh, skin friction. So if you can imagine running, say, a piece of paper, put it in molasses, and then try and pull it in one direction. Um, that's skin friction. So you're trying to shear the fluid. It's trying to grab onto the paper, and it's um, it's resisting that motion. It's resisting that deformation. And huh. the, the definition of viscosity is essentially resistance to shear. And the viscosity of air is relatively low compared to molasses. But if you've ever tried to pump a bike tire quickly, you're still trying to push a lot of air through a small opening. But uh, viscosity is potentially a large contributor in something like that, um, where it's it's providing a lot of that extra drag or that, that resistance force. So yeah, air is low viscosity. So typically the contributions of surface drag are pretty low. Um, but where you really get into trouble is when you have pressure drag. So that's when you have pressure on one side of a surface that is not matched on the other side of a surface. And this is characteristic of flow separation. Um, the best analogy I have for that is if you look at a transport truck or just a large vehicle driving on the road, um, the, 
the wake behind these vehicles can be pretty substantial. And um, this is me getting really nerdy, but uh, if they're driving through dust or snow, you can often see the snow get kind of pulled up into the wake so it fills and you can very clearly see where the border between the wake and the uh, the attached flow or at least the the free stream flow is going um, so I think it's cool because it lets you see the aerodynamics in action um, but that's just me totally geeking out on that stuff <laughs> yeah so the application for for us as uh, you know aerodynamically minded cyclists um, is that we want to minimize flow separation as much as possible, which, you know, as Andrew pointed out, uh, creates pressure drag. And we're going to post uh, some images of flow separation that Andrew um, Andrew's uh, virtual wind tunnel created as, as part of this analysis, so you can see it for yourself. But generally speaking, less flow separation is is better. And um, this is where, and from what I understand, this, this pressure drag is really where um, a lot of the a lot of the drag that slows you down as a cyclist. That's where that's it, it's the pressure drag that's the greatest contributor there. Yep, absolutely. And the the reason that flow separation is a problem is because you have this larger section of of low pressure that's behind you. It's kind of like uh, a plunger pulling you back. But if you keep it attached, there's it's called pressure recovery. Um, but it's basically components of that pressure are now pushing you back forward. So if you can keep it fully attached, you can, in theory, limit the amount of drag to what the skin friction contribution is for like a very streamlined object. Cool. Um, so this is why, well, streamlining exists because you're just trying to minimize that pressure drag. And so the, the higher the drag contributing shape, um, the more important it is to streamline it. So that's why the head is sitting there with a teardrop shape. That's right. And that's, uh, I was just about to say, getting back to the head, um, the <laughs> fact that also there is a torso behind the head in, uh, in a low head position. And as I said, we'll, we'll post the, the 3D images of Andrew so you can see his, his head position. The fact that there's a torso sitting behind it means that there is no pressure drop behind the head. It's not a, you know, it's not as if we decapitated him and threw his head, um, you know, uh, along the road. Sorry for that graphic image, Andrew. Um, there's, there's still a torso attached to it. So there is no low pressure behind the head uh, plungering to to use his analogy it back <laughs> that's such a terrible analogy i wish i'd used a different <laughs> word but uh, that being said now that we're on that path let's just roll with it um so the the really important part of this is to imagine if you're drafting something like a transport truck on the car on the on the road where you're driving behind your own drag contribution is extremely small if you're in a small car so a lot of your body if you break it down into different components, would be doing this. So anything directly behind my head would be benefiting from the wind that's being broken by my head. Um, likewise, if you were to do my head in a wind tunnel separately, you might get a much different result. Um, and same goes for a lot of these different components. So when I previously said the forks and the bars are seeing free stream air, they would probably be the most similar to what you would see in a wind tunnel for those components, where something like the, the rear triangle of a bike, um, it's going to be completely different because the airflow coming off the legs will not look like the airflow going smoothly over the bike as it would be tested in a typical wind tunnel test. Right, right. So yeah, the head the head blew me away uh, too because of how low that number was. But uh, having had this discussion and, and thrown out these ideas out there, I... I'm, I'm starting to definitely well, at least buy the number. Anything else that jumped out at you as being either really low or really high, like higher or lower than you would expect? Well, the it's not higher than I would expect, but it's definitely worth noting uh, the contribution of the legs. Yes. And if you look at the front of a cyclist, it's pretty obvious that the legs are a big part of that, that frontal area that's being presented. Um, it's also true that we do not have aero helmets for our legs. They're not <laughs> at all. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's really just inefficiency. Um, and this is why I'm going to interrupt you there. And if I'm going to link to, to these videos on YouTube, but if you've ever seen, um, uh, skiers trying to break ski mm. speed records, they have aero helmets for their legs and the suits that they have, they're basically rigid suits with airfoils on their legs. Um, pretty, pretty interesting to see. Um, so those guys do have, we, so there are people who have aero helmets for their legs, Andrew, I'll correct you there. Okay. Well, not cyclists. But they don't, they don't have to pedal. That's true. <laughs> and those guys are a different level of insanity. Uh, 
like I think 250 <laughs> kilometers an hour or something is like the downhill record. It's stupid fast. So uh, that being said, I would still be curious to try it. <laughs> So um, some of the other components that we saw, uh, oh, I didn't actually give the numbers for the legs. That's important. Ah, yes. Um, so my right leg and right foot, which were in this case extended. So this was with the, the crank vertical. So Vertical down. Yeah. Uh, and then the left leg was bent and up at its, its highest angle. But uh, the right leg contributed 28% of the total drag and the right foot uh, contributed about 5%. So that's a lot. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. my leg okay. there is contributing more than most people ever attribute to the entire bike frame. Um, even at the, the most conservative estimates with, uh, with a, a very draggy bike frame. So just one leg is worse than the $10,000 some people have spent on their bikes. <laughs> so. <laughs> and not to, well this this must be said that it's at the it's at the least aero efficient position when it's fully extended. It is. And I also weigh a lot more than most bikes. Um I would hope all bikes, <laughs> but uh, Yeah, I hope so. Uh the the real difference though is the left foot and left leg. So we're looking at like a 33 34% combined contribution for the right leg uh and it's only about what are we at about 16% for the left leg. So it is bent it's not um it's not the same frontal area if you look at it from a front projection but it's also it's it's greater far greater than half of the frontal area that the other leg presents so that means the shape itself is contributing a lot to this and this right. goes back to my discussion previously about having a, a a sphere or a cylinder presented to the wind versus some more efficient shape so your legs um as we talked about in the why humans are slow uh, episode, your, your legs are cylinders. They're not designed to go hundreds of kilometers an hour. Uh, they're, they've evolved to, to propel you th- for running, which is relatively low speed. And aerodynamics aren't that important, uh, at least not for most people. But uh, with your right. left leg, when, or with my left leg where it's bent, it actually, if you were to take a section through it, it looks more like an ellipse than a cylinder. So the right leg's fully extended downwards, but the left leg, if you take a horizontal section through it, now you're cutting through an angle. And we have this elliptical shape. And the reason that's important is for the same frontal area, an ellipse has a much lower drag coefficient than a cylinder. Um, and that's basically just streamlining. We're, we're reducing the pressure drag uh, component of, of in this case, my left leg. And that's why we're seeing 50% of the, uh, the actual drag where it might have two thirds of the frontal area. So it's, it's not only smaller in terms of frontal area, but it's a more efficient shape. And, and that's very key, I think. Right. And if I can turn this back to, uh, you know, practical applications, um, with with the head, we talked about how how important it is to have the right helmet and uh, the right head position. And I will I will say this that you know as much as you are a fan of that PO nine helmet, and I've used it before and I like it, and clearly Cody likes it, and lots of lots of other pros do. It is important that it's the right helmet for the position. So there's no you know we I just want to be careful that we're not making a blanket helmet recommendation for yes, for folks. Yes. Um, but that's that's a little bit of an aside. The legs, you as Andrew said, you can't put an arrow helmet on a leg, and so uh, the reason that this this information is useful to to you folks is understanding that a a large part of your aerodynamic drag you can't do a damn thing about. <laughs> Because you have to pedal, you know, there are optimal joint angles um, for pedaling your bicycle. And we're going to talk a little bit about those in in an upcoming episode. Um, But there's no way to to shield your legs, not in any legal way, um, not without building big fairings around your bike, as far as we know. Um, So knowing that a large, a fairly large component of your total drag comes from your legs is useful in evaluating potentially what it is that you can do. And by this, I mean, you don't really have 100% of your drag that you can easily manipulate. You maybe have 60% of your total drag that you have some degree of uh, of freedom in, in hopefully lowering. Yeah, yeah. So it's, yeah, don't feel too bad because <laughs> I, I have quite fat legs. Um, and I, I remember riding with, uh, 
the guys from trainer road in in hawaii one time and and nate actually commented he's like wow you've got big legs so (laughs) right from the top i've got an excuse so um but it's it's funny because you think oh well big legs should mean more power well (laughs) not always up to a point yeah Yeah, so that's why you know unless you're a track cyclist yeah yeah it helps in terms of overall force that you can put on the pedals but in terms of um uh, just the the cardiovascular limitations it doesn't really help all that much so so i am cursed with fat legs and fat arms unfortunately <laughs> so anything else do you want to talk about out of these components well the the other surprises i think were for me the forearms were six percent of the overall drag so still basically an order of magnitude less than the, the legs contributed but they're still sitting in the air in the free stream air not in overly efficient shape um, so they, they do have a, a fairly large impact. Um, but the gear train, I think was the bigger surprise. So seeing that around seven, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. Cause I do want to talk about forearms. Um, this one is really interesting because without giving too much away, I'm just going to like totally leave this matzo ball out there. There are things you can do about your forearms. So unlike your legs, there are, um, you know, position and I think probably maybe even equipment choices that um, that we can make to lower that drag that's just my that's my hypothesis and this is something that uh, I think we'll probably talk about in the future um, that's all I'll say about that all right uh, yes yeah, so the the forearms and what I was actually trying to say was the upper arms so i completely botched that one. Oh, uh, did you okay <laughs> but uh anyway the both the forearms and upper arms um having kind of larger upper arms too uh where that's 11 percent of your total drag um, but both of them are presented to free stream air so very sensitive to the overall drag and it's uh yeah it's really key to to maintain i guess uh proper streamlining with those if you can and it's not always possible, but it does explain why people like some of the, the pro triathletes out there who have relatively lean upper bodies um, do not have very high drag because just small little details like the size of their arms, you wouldn't think that that's a major contributor, but it does add up. And this is something that uh, because it's overlapping area, um, it's not necessarily picked up by frontal area measurement alone. Right. Right. Well, if you think about how much trouble um, aero bike manufacturers like Cervelo go to um, in order to skinny their head tubes, right? I mean, if you're looking on a bicycle sans rider, the the head tube of the bike is, is what sees the the air first. And there have been, you know, over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years, all sorts of things that, that manufacturers have done to reduce the, um, the, well, to say the diameter of the head tube is a little bit misleading because they're all arrow shapes now, but to reduce the, let's say the width, to use a kind of a gross term of the, uh, of the head tube that is presented to the wind. So that's because it's, it's out in free air and it's going to, it's going to cause the most amount of drag. So if we can, you know, again, no easy way to reduce the, the, the circumference of your upper arms. Um, but they, they do play a role for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so gear train was the next one I wanted to point out, and that was 7% of the overall drag, which is pretty high. Um, Way more than I would have suspected. Me too, yeah. So there there are a couple contributing factors, and part of it might be the bike that I'm on, which is a, a Ventum. And this is not to say that the Ventum uh, is a problem aerodynamically, because it uh, leaves out some components that actually might hide the contributions or, or shift the contributions over to the gear train. Um but on the front of the the down tube part, or not the down tube, because that's what they don't have, um, but the the front of the bottom bracket, there's a, a stagnation region. And stagnation means the air is basically coming to a stop. Uh, it's not necessarily a problem. It just needs to re-accelerate around the side. And without a crosswind, we're kind of re-accelerating into, on the one side into the drivetrain. Um, and, and that might, that acceleration of the air could lead to a higher drag in that specific case, just from that that portion. Um, something every bike will contribute or every bike with a seat tube uh, will contribute is as the air is accelerating around the seat tube, we've now got the crank when it's vertical and in the upper position. Um, the air is trying to rush around the side there, but it is being interrupted by the, the vertical crank section. Um, 
but uh, yeah, there's there's a lot of inefficiencies there, and the fact that it's moving makes it really hard to streamline. And people have played around with it, and there have undoubtedly been some interesting developments, like the one by drivetrains, or um, there's some other aero crank sets that you can find. But I think we're still far from an optimized solution on that. Yeah, my kind of my personal belief that 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 aero crank sets were bullshit or not bullshit, but firmly in the marginal gains, um, you know, cabinet because it's my thinking was because it, this component is somewhat down the stream of the bicycle. It's not something that hits the air first, um, so I never gave them much credit. But it looks like, um, you know, based on this analysis, that there's there there may be some some opportunity, some purely equipment opportunities. Uh, uh, you know, to reduce drag, and also to it's it's worth mentioning that, uh, and I think Andrew mentioned it when he was uh, going over the components that he included pedals in the drivetrain, and then uh, pedals are a pretty draggy kind of component too because they have weird edges and, and and shapes, and they're unless you've got you know aero optimized ones or aero covers for your pedals, which you potentially can have. Um, they're they're probably going to contribute a little bit too. And part of this as well could be dependent on the exact position I've taken. So um, one of the disadvantages of the analysis that we do is it is static right now um, just because the computational cost is way too high to have a dynamic model. But um, it may emphasize in a certain position a certain drag contribution that may not over the average or when averaged over the pedal stroke, it may not be the same total contribution. Yeah, um, so this is a snapshot in time. Um, it's not to say it's not representative. It's just when we do the full breakdown, it may skew one way or another. So, um, so it is possible that the gear train in this instance is contributing a bit more. Yeah, that's a fair point because this is, you know, with one leg, uh, you know, one one crank at six o'clock and one crank at 12 o'clock, you know, both of them are, both crank arms are essentially as in the wind as they're going to get. So every other pedal position is going to, my guess would be that it would present a more aerodynamic crank arm shape to the wind. Um, so this, you know, again, at a complete, at a guess, this may be the most un-aerodynamic your drivetrain gets. Yes, I would. I would generally agree with that. Um, and then some of the things that we can't do anything about would be the um, the inside of the the chain ring there, because air is trying to squeeze between it and the frame, and that inside of the chain ring is is there for a functional reason. Um, so whether you've got two chain rings or if if you've got a one by system, it's still not going to be very clean on the inside. So um, yeah, that that kind of thing. A it. one by might give you a wider channel, right? Like what we what we've that, talked about in the true. past might give you a bit more room for airflow. Yep, absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, the, that part I definitely agree with. The part that I would say that might be the bigger contributor is the inside is probably not optimized currently to to maintain that smooth airflow between the two components. So that might actually be a room right. or might be an area for optimization. But then you, when you're talking about the inside, you're talking about the pins and the ramps to, that help shift, right? But if you have, you know, a one-by system, you don't need those. Yep. Yeah. So there's there's lots of stuff that, uh, that, that people could look at. Um, Shimano, if you're listening, pay attention. <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> this is our proof we thought of at first. That's right. <laughs> so a, a big part of this was looking at um, like, okay, the, the bike is the bike. Uh, so I think we figured out it was around 24% of my total drag was contributed by the bike. Yep. Um, and I'm a bit bigger guy. So not not overweight, but I'm, I'm fairly tall and fairly muscular compared to a lot of triathletes, which is a real detriment to overall drag. Um, so if someone were to be shorter, um, well, they'd probably be, probably be riding a smaller bike frame would be one. Yes. But also they may not have the same body contributions as I have. So they might have skinnier arms or skinnier legs. So I actually went down that path and I, I broke the, the drag down or actually analyzed the drag um, for the case where I do have skinnier arms. And uh, it ended up being. And I'm going to cut you off again because oh. I just want to make a very, very <laughs> All quick this point. Um, no, no, <laughs> that's what uh, I, it's. It's fun to keep <laughs> folks that way. Um, all, uh, my point's really quick. It's just the fact that you know you you hear this figure thrown around all the time by mostly by bike fitters that you know your bike fits super important aerodynamics because your body contributes 
you know, you'll hear like 70%, 75%, 80%, 85% I've even heard of the total drag. Um, and this is, uh, this is proof of that uh, in Andrew's case, or at least it's ballpark, right? So we, we, we're, if we're seeing Andrew's bike frame contribute 23% um, frame, excuse me, framing components contribute 23% of total drag. That means his body is 77%, which is right in the ballpark of what we've heard all these years. So at least we can say that, um, you know, if your bike fitter is telling you that you're 80% of total drag, that they're not, you know, they're not full of shit. They're telling you the truth. Yep. Yeah. And that's a number that I, I stand by. Like, I think that is a fairly representative number to say anywhere between 75 and 80%. So it's, yeah, it's now proven. <laughs> <laughs> we, in, and, we in, in our n, n equals one case yes well i've got yes. more than n equals one but uh yeah <laughs> oh fair point not but have you done this breakdown on multiples i i have done and it's it's pretty similar across most athletes ah. like there there might be a slight shift here and there but uh yeah it's it's not a significant shift it's not like all of a sudden we're getting 10 percent of the drag comes from the bike and 90 percent from the athlete um although if you're sitting straight up that might be the case uh-huh yes that's right so, yeah this is this is andrew and his most arrow possible yes i was thinking as arrow as i could <laughs> so, um, so speaking of thinking arrow um tightening the waist i was curious what kind of impact does that actually have and i i slimmed myself up slightly um so using some of the computer software we have i, I brought in my waist and um, so you photoshopped yourself Andrew? i did absolutely so <laughs> i will be the first to admit that <laughs> <laughs> 3D Photoshop yes. himself just to get a better drag number. <laughs> so it did not have nearly as significant an impact as I thought it would. Um, I went from a 0.242 baseline CDA to 0.241. Um, so really, like I was, I was kind of surprised, and I thought that's really interesting. But. So what exactly did you do? How did you, was, which, which part of your, of your torso did you manipulate? Uh, I was just, just so a waste. I basically said, yeah, what if I lost 10 or 15 pounds? Um, I don't know that I necessarily have that much to give around my waist, but I just pulled everything in a little bit. Um, so the effect of really like sucking it in when you're doing the analysis? Exactly, yeah, yeah. But uh, what's really, really interesting about this is I've seen in the past some athletes who have a bit more of a beer belly. And what you're essentially doing is if you think of the – such an unflattering comparison, but uh, if the beer belly is kind of like the front of a submarine. Uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> I love it. But uh, that's – I'd much rather think of myself <laughs> as a front of a submarine than somebody who's got a beer belly. <laughs> So uh, the the contribution to this is you're slowing the acceleration around the sides instead of having it go into a pocket. If you uh, if you can think of a really slim athlete bending over, um, you basically have the air stop kind of around the 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 crotch area where it's completely stagnating, and then it has to right. turn direction ninety degrees, go sideways to get around to your uh, to your torso, and then turn another ninety degrees to join the free stream air. And then if it's trying to join up on your back, it has to turn ninety degrees again. So that's interesting because for the case of lean athletes, it actually does indicate that uh, they, at least by having a shape there. Um, they could be a lot more aerodynamic. So this this beer bottle or beer bo belly submarine shape um, could actually present some optimization there, where you've got the air flowing more smoothly from underneath your torso around to your back, and it could limit flow separation, which would have uh, a very big impact on the flow over your back itself. Um, so are we advocating that that skinny athletes stuff a pillow down their front, the front of their tops um, before they, before their next race? So this is um, very interesting, but I've heard anecdotal evidence from velodrome testing that ill-fitting uh, skin suits that actually inflate while you're riding have provided lower drag. Um, what? Yeah, yeah. So this this exact scenario has happened with some female athletes where um, they ended up with a, a bit of a beer belly, which I think is less likely for high-end female athletes to have than high-end male athletes. But um, it it benefited them in this case. So it does huh. lend some some actual, although anecdotal, proof that, uh, that maybe thinner isn't necessarily better. And even though I may have reduced the surface area and because of how I brought my waist in, um, it reduced the curvature that it had to go through. Um, 
it, it may be beneficial to be looking at other shapes down there. So, hmm. uh, so I thought that was a super interesting result. That is for sure. Oh, and you did one other analysis, right? I did. Um, so I've been referencing my fat arms and fat legs all episode. Um, so I decided to get rid of those digitally anyway. And uh, this was a much more significant impact. And this is kind of what I expected. So it uh, brought my CDA down to 0.237, which is about a 2% gain. So not huge, but not terrible either. Um, and 2% can certainly add up over the course of a longer race. So did you manipulate the, the both the arms and the legs or just the arms here? Uh, this was both the arms and the legs. Um, I didn't okay. make them as skinny as a pro athlete would be, but I, I certainly made them skinnier than they currently are. So that had the impact of allowing, well, it reduced frontal area slightly, but it also provided a more streamlined shape. So it's basically the same length. If you look at it from the side, it's just narrower. So now it's got more mm -hmm. of this elliptical shape that we mentioned before. So CD is reduced as well as the frontal area. So, um, so a 2% overall contribution is not, uh, not terrible. Um, but achieving that might be harder than achieving it in some other ways. Right, right. Yeah, I see in your in your analysis in your report over 40k TT at like 250 watts, it was a 23 second uh, time savings. Just to give people some perspective. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, that certainly adds up. And if you start to do the, the marginal gains approach, um, you can get a lot of these little low hanging fruit, uh, and then contributing larger things. Like if you're doing over the longer period, doing body composition changes, especially as you start to get into shape, if you're just getting into cycling, you can start to see a lot of these benefits play out. And not only are you getting faster, but you're getting more aerodynamic as you're, as you're losing weight. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, another interesting result, not on, not unexpected, but, uh, it's interesting to see it play out numerically. Yeah. Speaking of body composition changes, you know, guys put down your, your, dumbbell curls, <laughs> curl bars, or yeah, barbell curl bars, because they're not doing you any favors in the aerodynamics department. That's right. It might look good in a mirror and in your Instagram selfies, but uh, <laughs> who really cares about Instagram? Yeah, when you can when you can save two percent of aerodynamic drag, right? <laughs> exactly. I would much rather save twenty seconds. <laughs> Any day, any day. <laughs> um, let's talk real quick about um, the the components, uh, specifically the the front and rear wheels. Um, no real surprises there. I think the front wheel is obviously higher drag because it's more in the wind. Um, cool to see that the rear wheel has virtually no drag to it. Um, you used a disc wheel in this analysis, but it was it was essentially invisible to the wind, huh? Exactly. Yeah. And what. Uh well, where they really start to gain their impressive benefit is when you look at having a disc wheel in crosswind. Yes. And this is why I'm always advocating use the deepest wheels you feel comfortable to ride in a crosswind because the stronger the crosswind, generally the more beneficial they are until you get blown off the side of the road and crash. Especially so. in your rear and in, in the rear wheel because yeah. it doesn't contribute to steering torque input, right? Exactly. So it's like it's not going to affect steering. It's just going to push you. And if, you know, look, if you're like the size of certainly athlete size makes a difference. Like if you've got the kinetic energy of, you know, either Andrew or myself, we're about the same size, you know, traveling at the mid 30s or up, up high 30s it's it's kind of harder to push us around than if you're a 100 pound athlete um but yeah i'm 100 percent with you like front wheels you can you can make the case although interesting we saw kona revert to deep front wheels you know last year we, we this is a total sidebar but the genesis for this podcast was actually a conversation that andrew and i recorded just a phone chat about positions and, and equipment choices of uh kona 2018 mm -hmm. and one of the things that i noticed was that a lot of uh high-end pros were going with skinnier or less deep front wheels like cam Worf rode like a 40 front which is pretty atypical and he was like the fastest cyclist still is um and uh, i was thinking that maybe that might be the new the new trend of you know just reducing that steering torque um but uh this year they're, they've gone deep again so you know who knows maybe it's just fashion could be I, I would also argue that the design of these are improving so much that uh, a lot of the negative impacts have disappeared um hmm. Okay, so shifting gears a little bit, um, we've done this analysis uh, now, and if I was to ask you, uh, Andrew, to put on your, you know, uh, your, you know, you're not a bike fitter, but maybe like a bike fit consultant or a gear selection consultant hat on, and somebody comes with you, comes to you and says, where should I 
where should I be thinking about saving drag? What's the best kind of bang for my buck if I am an athlete looking to become more aerodynamic? Where should I spend my time and money? Well, bang for the buck, um, I would say helmet is probably a good portion of that. Well, first of all, bike fit. 100% 100% get a proper bike fit before even starting to consider anything else with aerodynamic. You know what we should do is we should have, we should do the same, we should do a follow-up to the show where we do, uh, where you scan yourself in like a terrible position, like head up and, you know, maybe even like sitting up or something and then show folks how much of a difference, you know, how much of a difference that makes. Cause that, that number is tremendously big. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is definitely worth a look. Yeah, go on. Bike fit, I 100% agree with you. That's probably the that's the number one place to start. Yeah. Yeah, so bike fit, um that would be the biggest improvement. Um you might even get more power out of it because you've got a proper fit as opposed to just kind of muddling along with an improper fit. Totally. So I think that is where I would start the focus. Um after that, I would go for helmets. Um only because helmets well, you need to spend money on a helmet regardless. You don't always need to buy extra wheels. <laughs> um, so if you're going to spend the money, uh, get a decent aero helmet, and that's a, that's a good start. And again, as we said earlier, the, it, the, a decent aero helmet is, is a decent aero helmet for your head position. Yes. Yeah. See, in terms of the eyeball wind tunnel, just make sure that it kind of blends into your, your back. Um, if you're sticking your head straight up, then... Um, a longer tail helmet might uh, might benefit you a little bit more where you've got that extra frontal area projection. Um, if you have a head down position um, that's commonly seen more in like the Tour de France time trials, um, something without a tail like a, a cask bambino might be more appropriate in those cases. Um, yep. But there there is a, a wide range and it's it depends highly on your position. Um, and then we can answer the question with a little bit more uh, specificity if if we go into a virtual wind tunnel analysis. So helmet would be number two after the bike fit. And then I would just start working your way backwards from the front. So the front wheel and aero bars, I think both can have huge contributions. And as we discussed with uh, Nick from TriRig, um, having the ability to adjust yourself, I would say is even more important than having um, an aerodynamic set up up front so that that can contribute in terms of the the whole system drag much larger than just having a, a smaller taper like a smaller cross-section base bars so sure that's that's why something like the tri-rig alpha would be a very beneficial uh, piece of equipment to take on just because you do provide yourself that opportunity to make yourself as fast as possible um after that um yeah i mean it's it's really your choice there's uh the gear train you could look at reducing like going to a one by system uh rear wheel would probably be where i'd stop before gear train um just because in crosswinds that's where it does start to provide more of a benefit and it can really skew the the drag balance of all the different components so um and then once you've done all that then i would consider bike frame so i think there are a lot of excellent frames out there and they will have some different characteristics in terms of how they handle and crosswinds but it's um yeah it's it's really comes down to your preference and really what bike fits you and fits your budget best right no i think that's i i would agree with pretty much everything you said there um in your case specifically the frame which is the uh, the ventum um the Ventum one that you're riding is 4.4%. Mm-hmm. So you can look at this in two ways. You can say, wow, that's a really small number. And, you know, do I need to spend a bazillion dollars to make it slightly smaller? Or you can say the Ventum's a really aerodynamic frame. It's only 4.4% of my total drag, <laughs> right? So, um, you know, both I, I would think, you know, both of those assertions are probably accurate. Yeah, yeah, and there's there's other benefits too. Like with the Ventum, they've got the integrated bottle on top, and that means you don't have to stick another bottle into the wind. Um, which cylinders, as we've discussed many times, are not efficient shapes. So if you've got them anywhere on your bike, um, they're not generally going to help. Um, between the arms is probably the best place to keep a bottle, um, just because of the accessibility. Um, behind the saddle is a good place for an extra bottle, um, but. If you keep one on like a down tube, for example, that's just about the worst case you can put it. Um, so it's, yeah, I, I 
personally, like I think something like the Ventum is a very good optimized system in terms of carrying along your nutrition and hydration. And I will say that in crosswinds, because because there's no down tube, um, it actually shifts the center of pressure backwards and makes it more stable. Um, and that's from my own experience. It does not seem to be upset by winds, where if you have something that's uh, got more frontal area shifted forward, or sorry, more side area shifted forward, so like the um, uh, Diamond or P5X, uh, one of those bikes that doesn't have a seat tube, they may experience a little bit more unsteadiness in crosswinds. However, this is pure speculation at this point. I haven't ridden either bike, but this is just based on my own a combination of assumptions as well as educated guesses. Interesting. Um, that's awesome. So one of the things that I want to sort of tease out is that Andrew and I are, are having done this analysis, are trying to think of other optimizations that we can uh, we can effect to uh to make us even a more aerodynamic and uh you know we'll we'll leak those out as they become appropriate over future episodes <laughs> this could be a a slow burn in terms of the uh, the release but yeah we'll see how it goes yeah it's always interesting to think about this kind of stuff though for sure and uh in the next episode or two we have uh a, an expert on um triathlon specific fit who's uh, worked with some of the top athletes in the field coming on to share his uh, his experience in that field, and uh, as we've probably said, I don't know five or six times in this episode, that that fit is the most important component of your of reducing that uh, aerodynamic picture. And I would like to emphasize, like before you spend money on anything else related to aerodynamics, get yourself fit properly because that can not only make you faster in terms of producing more power, but just uh, reducing injury and all these other things that it can address. Yeah, I think that was time number seven. Then yes. <laughs> Anything else? Um, I think those are the main points I wanted to get across. So I think the doing that analysis, doing that breakdown was really insightful for me. And hopefully everyone listening feels the same. And I'd welcome any feedback and comments on what they thought about the breakdown once we post all the numbers. I do have a question for you. Um, so currently this service of breaking down the, uh, you know, the, of breaking down the athlete and the, and the bike is not something that you offer commercially. Is that right? Or is it a, or is it an option with the virtual wind tunnel service? Um, anything's really an option. It's not a standard option. It's a, it's quite tedious. Um, so I would say it's more reserved for kind of an academic type study where something like this, where we're trying to uncover a few answers for whether we're looking at uh, optimization of ourselves or product development. Um, for a typical athlete, I don't really think it's worthwhile. But um, different people have different requests, and sometimes it's just interesting to know. Um, but generally speaking, if you have small arms and legs, um, that's a, a good hint that uh, you know the, the leg and arm contributions will be small. Um, and the rest you can kind of see from the images that the, the virtual wind tunnel report will provide. Folks, as always, thank you very much for tuning in and uh, spending close to an hour of your time with us. Um, if you like the show, do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, we will be posting uh, the breakdown of Andrew's aerodynamic analysis in our show notes. So take a peek at that, as well as some of the images from the virtual wind tunnel. And uh, if you are interested in uh, in getting yourself scanned, um, I am uh, one of the uh, folks offering the service in Toronto, and uh, I believe Andrew, you probably have partners worldwide by now. Yep, yep, we've got a few. It's still on our old Stack Zero website. Um, this is something that we're kind of in in pre-release through Four Eyes right now. Um, but if you go to stackzero.com/bwt. Um, that will give you a list of a few people and we will be increasing the rollout as we go forward over the next couple months. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. Bye everyone. Bye.